Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. where we start with a random article, explore it, and then follow the links and see where it takes us. Today's starting topic is Richard G. Hubbler. Why don't you start us off, John? Well, Richard G. Hubbler was a prolific author from Pennsylvania, primarily dealing in the writing of biographies. He did both fictional and non-fiction biographies. He is most well-known as the co-author of Ronald Reagan's 1965 autobiography, Where's the Rest of Me?, which is an <laughs> awkwardly foreshadowing title in light of him later developing Parkinson's, or rather, Alzheimer's disease. Mm. However, uh, Richard G. Hubbler, who was born in Dunmore, Pennsylvania, died in 1981 of Parkinson's disease, hence my not-quite-Freudian slip, <laughs> but a similar sort of slip earlier as far as diseases go a slip of some kind a definite slip yes yes but um yeah he was a he was in the marine corps and the u.s marine corps obviously because he was from the u.s right but yeah he was very much an author his whole life he wrote for the marine corps gazette and he wrote biographies for people, um, all kinds of stuff. He's a writing man throughout his whole life. He was. He was also very much a Pennsylvanian. I mean, he was born in Dunmore. He went to school in Swarthmore. Both of those are in Pennsylvania. So he definitely grew up uh, and was very formed by... Uh, Pennsylvania. He um, was commissioned by Walt Disney Productions, I think. This is a pretty notable thing. To write a biography of Walt Disney short after his, shortly after his death. Mm-hmm. And he researched it, and he wrote it, and he submitted it, and as soon as he did, it went away. It never <laughs> saw the light of day again. It was never printed. Uh, and when he was asked as to why it was unpublished he responded that there were no comments no reasons no nothing at all (laughs) uh, about why richard g hubler's biography of walt disney would never see the light of day uh animation historian wade sampson notes that when bob thomas some years later was engaged to write what became walt disney an american original Disney executives explained that two other writers had tried their hand at writing the official biography, but both of the attempts had proven unsatisfactory. (laughs) Now, here's a guy, Richard G. Hubbler, who has wrote biographies for uh, Chiang Kai-shek's personal pilot, uh, Ronald Reagan. He's no small when it comes to the field of biography writing and yet he wasn't good enough for Walt Disney I really have to wonder what he said that angered the Disney powers that be so <laughs> yeah that, that's gotta be something wonder if it still exists somewhere in some form well let's see it doesn't really give us any sort of title for us to extrapolate upon that in the uh, article here. But maybe one of these little footnotes might take us to a a link. There is uh, one of the quotes discussing that uh, statement I previously said that Robert G. Hubler gave where where Richard was left in the dark about why it was unpublished. That came from another book called The Animated Man, A Life of Walt Disney. So if you wanted to learn more about Walt Disney than what perhaps uh, the official and authentic 
Disney certified Walt Disney biography might give you, you might want to look into The Animated Man, A Life of Walt Disney by Michael Barrier. Uh, the only thing that we could do at this point would be jump to Michael Barrier and research him mm. further, see if we can't find out more about this book here, because there isn't a direct link from this article to uh, that particular Disney biography. Yeah, and of course we could also jump to Walt Disney and see what the Wikipedia writers have to say. Because Disney is not in control of the Wikipedia article. But they also could be, because Wikipedia is an open source thing. So, what's more likely for them to edit the page of is the question. Hmm. They want to use Wikipedia to investigate something. Will they go down the less likely path of this Michael Barrier guy? Or Hmm. perhaps towards that of Bob Thomas to see if he mentions anything else about the other failed attempts at writing a biography? But I am really curious about this. I feel like this Hmm. is kind of the kind of conspiracy stuff we want to look into further (laughs) i'm all for getting into conspiracy uncovering um well let's give uh michael barrier a shot see what he brings to light here hopefully it's not another barrier (laughs) certainly not rife with links is it Mm. I don't see any mention of... Oh, well, there's mention of Disney, but not the books. Mentions the animated man. Uh, and says that the animated man was allegedly more of a critical slam of Disney's cartoons and films than a useful biography. <laughs> so that's not terribly reassuring. <laughs> Hmm. So, he wasn't the one that ended up writing the official Disney no, sought biography. No. Michael Barrier was the one who quoted our right. prior author that we were talking about, Richard G. Hubler, as to why his book was never published. And it doesn't look as though this is going to shed any light on that. Meanwhile, though, it says... Disney historian Wade Sampson, in a contrary view, stated, If you were a fan of Walt Disney and want information that you know you can trust, then I definitely recommend you add this book to your collection. Hmm. Speaking of uh, Michael Barrier's The Animated Man, A Life of Walt Disney. So, I really wish there was an article about that book. (laughs) Yeah. Because at this point, it seems like if there were some sort of article to extrapolate on what exactly the contents of that were mm. maybe we'd have a better shot of it maybe we should we have the mm. option we can always go back to Walt Disney and see if we can't find out about it that's true I mean we could I feel like the Walt Disney article could have a section about biographies maybe a controversy section yeah yeah it's that possible. could be well I think we should Go further down this rabbit hole. Okay. Because, I mean, Disney did draw quite a few. Alice in Wonderland and all. Okay, here we go. This might be something. What did you search for? Biography. But, um, I came up with biographer. Mmm. Um, it falls under the accusations of anti-Semitism and racism oh, section. Oh, Yikes. Though, I mean, we've all seen Song of the South, we know. <laughs> yeah. Some of those early cartoons certainly were not very... Un- subtle. Yeah. They're not very subtle <laughs> is what they weren't. Yeah. Animator and director David Swift, who was Jewish, told a biographer that when he informed Disney that he was leaving to take a job at Columbia Pictures, Disney responded in a feigned Yiddish accent. Oh, dear. Okay, Davy boy, off you go to work for those Jews. It's where you belong with those Jews. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. But he came back. He came back to Disney, back to Disney and said that he owed everything to Disney. 
And then so, when he left the studio a second time in the early 50s, because apparently this David Swift guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing, <laughs> uh, he was told by Disney that, quote, there is a, still a candle burning in the window if you ever want to come back. That's a menorah reference. Mm. That's not anti-Semitism. <laughs> that's just kind of maybe, I guess, remarking. Semitism? That's just Semitism, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um <laughs> But, uh, hey, he said it, so. Yeah, at least, I don't know, kind of makes you wonder if, like, I mean, obviously they're not very, perhaps, um, prudent remarks, but maybe they were more of, like, a joking tone, not like a super trying-to-be-hateful tone. No, I think he was probably just... I, I feel like Disney was probably a very overworked guy, mm. trying to cover a lot of bases at once. He had a very particular way he wanted stuff done. So anytime somebody even mildly frustrated him, I could see mm. him just like going on a rant as opposed to trying to curb himself. <laughs> he just had to have like a vent. Yeah. I'm not saying that justifies it. I'm just saying that's probably exactly why he was doing it that way. Yeah. He was so inconsiderate at some times. Oh, wow. The um, Disney biographer Neil Gabler. Uh, I was just Gabler, reading this, yeah. Uh, he was the first writer to get unrestricted access to the Disney archives. And it wasn't until 2006 that he concluded that the available evidence did not support the accusation accusations of anti-Semitism. His, his quote about the findings was, That's one of the questions everybody asks me. My answer to that is not in the conventional sense that we think of someone as being an anti-Semite, but he got the reputation because in the 1940s, he got himself allied with a group called the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which was an anti-communist and anti-Semitic organization. And though Walt himself, in my estimation, was not anti-Semitic, nevertheless, he willingly allied himself with people who were anti-Semitic and that reputation stuck. He was never really able to expunge it throughout his life. Hmm. Well, I think he just had a really rough time in history to <laughs> potentially have any affiliation with people of that yeah. disposition. I mean, that kind of thing would stick. Yeah, the 50s were kind of a rough time for... <laughs> Anybody. You know, yeah, like I mean, if, if you're in the wake of World War II, that's totally understandable that you wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to shake that kind of thing. Like, you had to be really careful who you were friends with, who you were talking to. Otherwise, you'd get accused of all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. If it wasn't anti-Semitism, it was communism. If it wasn't communism, it was being a hippie, which wasn't really that big <laughs> of a deal. But <laughs> <laughs> but you can't deny the um, not-so-subtle racism in the early cartoons. Yeah, like uh, one where... Mickey Mouse dresses in blackface. Uh, the black bird in the short Who Killed the Cock Robin or Sunflower, the half donkey slash half black centaurette with a watermelon in Fantasia. <laughs> is exceptionally racist. The feature film Song of the South, which they don't even expound upon. They don't mm. give an example they from Song of the to. South. They just say the movie was. Yeah. The whole thing. That whole movie. The Indians and Peter Pan. Mm. And the crows and Dumbo. Although the case has been made that the crows were sympathetic to Dumbo because they knew what it was like to be ostracized. Mm. Yeah, and there's... Oh, man, I can't remember exactly what it was called. But there's an early Disney cartoon where they, for some reason, there's, like, some kind of scene or shot that takes place in, like, maybe Africa mm. or something, but it shows a very, like, primitive tribe, and it greatly exaggerates their features in a very racist oh, way. Boy. And I was very shocked <laughs> and appalled <laughs> while watching it. Right. And it stands to reason, but uh, again, this Neil Gambler guy, the guy who got access to the Disney archives and, and uh, wrote the most recent biography in 2006, said 
that uh, Walt Disney was also no racist. He neither publicly nor privately made disparaging remarks about black people or asserted white superiority. Like most white Americans of his generation, however, he was racially insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that kind of just goes with the generation, I think. Yeah, yeah, and um, it, it became apparent later that those things were not appropriate for the workplace, uh, <laughs> along with, you know, a slew of other things, such as being drunk on the job, uh, mm. sleeping on the job, uh, sexual harassment. It, mm. it took a while for us to work through the uh, ethics of conducting <laughs> good business, I think. So, as it would turn out, there are not too, too many... Um, conspiracy theories and so forth about Walt Disney. However, outside of all of the things we just discussed, which were primarily social issues, there is the infamous hibernation urban legend. <laughs> the long-standing urban legend maintains that Disney was cryogenically frozen mm. and that his corpse was stored beneath the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland, <laughs> but Disney's remains were cremated on December 17, 1966, and his ashes interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, Florida, California. The first known human cryonic freezing was in January 1967, more than a month after Disney's death. <laughs> According to at least one Disney publicist, as reported in the French magazine Ici Paris, in 1969, the source of the rumor was a group of Disney studio animators with a bizarre sense of humor, <laughs> who would later go on to make Futurama, who were playing a final prank on their late boss. His daughter Diane wrote in 1972, there was absolutely no truth to the rumor that my father, Walt Disney, wished to be frozen. I doubt that my father had ever heard of cryonics, and that's exactly what they want us to think. You know what my theory is? I think that he wanted to be cryonically frozen until Disney made a movie called Frozen. And then he and could then, unfreeze mm -hmm. just in time for the sequel, Thawed. Yes. It's a pretty brilliant business move. Mm -hmm. It's really ahead of his time to think that in the late 1960s, Walt Disney, lung cancer and all, was thinking about a CGI film 40 years in the making <laughs> that's pretty crazy well I think a lot of the stuff about Disney is pretty well known um, we could go on about Disney and Disney stuff for hours and hours but we have an important choice to make because mm. we have all of these lovely locations in California and Florida that he both lived in and did business in as mm -hmm. well as all of the Disney Entertainment Empire options and finally we also have a link to various footnotes in the history of cryogenic freezing mm -hmm. of people both the process the first known human to be cryonically frozen and so on so from here hmm. I have a lot of good options really I'm kind of interested to see who the first person to undergo cryonic freezing is. I was kind of leaning that way myself because the fact that that has its own link <laughs> is pretty tempting. Because, right. I mean, like, was is he still frozen or what? Well, according to the Wikipedia article, he's technically dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I guess it didn't work. I, well, we'll have to see. Uh, let's. The guy who was first cryogenically frozen, or as Wikipedia keeps putting it annoyingly, cryonically frozen. <laughs> I don't know what the difference would be. Hmm. Uh, maybe there is some sort of difference in the wording there. But anyway, the guy's name is James Bedford. He was born in 1893, died in 1967. Or did he? Exactly. He is the first person whose body was cryopreserved after legal death. <laughs> and who remains preserved at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. Oh my god, that's a link. Yes. <laughs> In the cryonics community, the anniversary of his cryopreservation is celebrated as Bedford Day. Wow. Oh, he, he got that for free, dude. Hmm. 
In June 1965, E.V. Cooper's Life Extension Society, or LES, offered the opportunity to preserve one person free of charge, stating that the Life Extension Society now has primitive facilities for emergency <laughs> short-term freezing and storing our friend, the large homotherm, or man. LES offers to freeze free of charge the first person desirous and in need of cryogenic suspension. Hmm. So Bedford took the opportunity, and he was established as their candidate. Bedford actually had kidney cancer that had later metastasized into his lungs, a condition that would have been untreatable at the time. Bedford left $100,000 to <laughs> Cryonics Research in his will, but more than this amount was utilized by Bedford's wife and son in court, having to defend his will and his cryopreservation due to arguments created by other relatives. Now, see, what I'm wondering is... If he technically didn't die because he was frozen, right? does his will go into effect? That's why they had to spend all those monies on legal fees. <laughs> because I'm sure all of the relatives were like, what is this crack of cryogenic <laughs> crap that you have just made, made wanderlust into? I mean, this guy's obviously pretty well off. 1960s has a hundred thousand dollars just kind of chilling out yeah that's that's good that's decent so he obviously had some relatives who were probably like you know banking on him dying <laughs> i mean like as mean as that sounds like they're probably happens. like you're the guy you're gonna like make our children go to college and stuff but the thing of it is that he was. I think that's why his his wife and his kid went to take. They took him. They took him all to court because he wasn't mm. dead. To that end, I wonder if he had a pension. Mm. If he had a pension, and he wasn't dead, would his family still be eligible to receive that pension ad mm. nauseum, just forever? That's a good point. I wonder. Well. Hmm. According to this article, Bedford's body was frozen a few hours after his death due to natural causes related to his cancer. So they froze him after he died? See, that doesn't make any sense because I figure if you're going to freeze somebody... Do it at the last possible moment, maybe, yeah, but... Like, wait until you're kind of, you know... Hospice-bound, but yeah, perhaps or like, not dead. Maybe, like, comatose or something. Exactly. This isn't hmm. reasonable, though. He's already dead? Why are you wasting Yeah, if you're already dead, then freezing's not going to do anything. Just going to make you a little less smelly, really. Yeah. Oh, wait. Here we go. Um, Bedford's body was maintained in liquid nitrogen by his family until 1982. And in May 1991... His body's condition was evaluated when he was moved to a new storage dewar, which is a thing that has a linked cryogenic storage dewar. Um, the examiners concluded that it seems likely that his external temperature has remained at relatively low sub-zero temperatures throughout the storage interval. Hmm. What does that supposed to mean? I guess that's good. Maybe. So it seems likely that his external temperature has remained at relatively low sub-zero temperatures. So that means that he hasn't been stored too cold. Just a little cold. Just hmm. frozen. Not like super frozen. Not freezer burnt is what he's <laughs> saying. He's saying that he was frozen perfectly, preserved, and he shouldn't have any nerve damage, or he shouldn't have a uh, ton of nerve damage coming out of this. I suppose. But I feel like they've kind of... I mean, they haven't, like, figured out cancer yet, but there are ways to treat it At now. least try, yeah. So I feel like now would be a decent time to dethaw and figure out what, you know... Because the thing is, when do you unfreeze? Like, if he's already dead, how? Like, when when do you unfreeze him to, you know? Yeah. Try I, to 
would say, sip him going? I would say unfreeze him. Just for the hell of it, let's swap out a lung, swap out a kidney, and then see what happens. If mm. those are the two main things that are a problem with mm -hmm. him, maybe don't even treat the cancer. Let's just see if long-term cryogenic mm. freezing works. But I don't know if anybody's really willing to take that sort of risk. Because, I mean, <laughs> kidneys and lungs are sort of in demand whenever they come up. Mm -hmm. Who wants well, to... they could put him on a waiting list before they unfreeze him. There you go. And then unfreeze uh -huh. him now we're thinking. as soon as that becomes available. That might work. Hmm. Hmm. Well, the problem with all this, though, is that the cryogenesis process with him was particularly primitive. Hmm. It was yeah. injected with dimethyl sulfoxide, <laughs> a compound once thought to be useful for long-term cryogenics. Turns out that wasn't really the case. So <laughs> it is very unlikely that his brain was protected from the freezing uh. process. So... You could bring him back, but he might be a tad brain dead, hmm. <laughs> which is unfortunate, but... Yeah, well, he did get it for free, so it's not like he paid for it. He gets what he paid for. I'm, I'm telling you what, though. I am intrigued by both the Alcor Life Extension Foundation and the Life Extension Society. Mm. Both of these things seem just linked to enough and also crazy enough to be interesting <laughs> if we should click upon them. True. And I'm sure within them, we can always jump to any cryogenic link that we desire. That's very true. So even though there are some other interesting things about cryogenics in here, I say since Alcor Life Extension Foundation is linked to twice, mm -hmm. maybe we should go there. That's also where his body is right now, so let's go. That's true. I'm sure they've figured out some things, some important life-saving techniques. Okay. Well, the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, most often referred to as Alcor, is a Scottsdale, Arizona based nonprofit and it researches advocates for and performs cryonics hmm. again after legal death now one thing i want to do just briefly is bounce over to legal death and explain what exactly that means <laughs> because it seems to me that usually means the cessation of life mm -hmm. however legal death is by definition a government's official recognition that a person has died. Normally, this is done by issuing a death certificate. In most cases, such a certificate is only issued either by a doctor, a doctor's declaration, or uh, by an unidentified, by an identified corpse. Uh, so it's usually done by way of the doctor coming in saying time of death, etc., etc. However. It also states in the article that medical advances have made death more difficult to define. Hmm. So, we may have some cases where a person may be declared dead without any remains or without a doctor's declaration. Uh, in some cases, legal declaration of death is fraudulent. Many people fake their own deaths for various reasons. Hmm. So, there are potential instances, even in the case of these chronically frozen people, where they may not have been entirely what we would think of as completely dead. Mm. They may have just been legally dead. Okay. That being said, back to <laughs> Alcor. Okay, well, Alcor, it seems they were founded and established in 1972 under the name Alcor Society for Solid State Hypothermia. They changed their name to Alcor Life Extension Foundation in 1977. Uh, let's see. First human that they performed their cryopreservation on was Fred Chamberlain's father. Fred Chamberlain was the one of the founders of the organization. Mm, okay. Yeah, and that was in 1976. 
Alcor seemed to be a really slow, slow growing organization. In 1984, it merged with the Cryonic Society of South Florida, and at that point, Alcor counted only 50 members. And that was in the same year that it preserved just its third patient. <laughs> Not a very popular option for a lot of people, it seems. <laughs> However, it is notable that now that we are in 2015, there are 134 people they have cryopreserved so oh. far. So they there's definitely been an uptick in the uh, cryonics movement of late. Well, I'm sure it's... Um... A lot more viable now and more it's been more refined so i'm sure it's a lot more attractive of an option oh wow the oldest patient at alcor is a 101 year old woman and the youngest is an 18 year old woman wow procedures here um oh wow um, it says most Alcor patients fund the procedure through life insurance policies, which name Alcor as the beneficiary. So that's interesting. Hmm. Another interesting thing is how they have now adapted cryoprotectant formulas, and they allegedly have a way of achieving ice-free preservation of the human brain called neurovitrification. In 2005, that process was applied to the first whole-body subject as opposed to brain-only, and this resulted in vitrification of the brain and conventional cryopreservation of the rest of the body. So work is continuing towards achieving whole-body vitrification, which is cryopreservation without ice. Hmm. Which is, but that's limited by the ability to fully circulate the cryoprotectant throughout the body, and that's so basically that's what they're working towards is being able to hold the body in a similar stasis without having to freeze it as much. It's mm. still held in a cold environment, but without relying on actual freezing of the tissue, which might be damaging. Uh, true. Now, so do they still inject stuff? Mm-hmm. Is that still part of the process? Yeah, there are... Um, they have to inject the particular formula capable of achieving that um, protecting hmm. uh, layer, basically. It's, it's, a, it's a compound that they inject in, and allegedly that's supposed to stop the ice from damaging the tissue, but I don't know how viable that would be. <laughs> Considering uh, once you die... Blood doesn't really tend to pump through your veins much longer. Right, and that's why they can't get the cryopreservation, or that's why they can't get the vitrification process to work on the rest of the body. Mm. Like, the the brain is one thing, because that's kind of always going. Mm -hmm. But the extremities, you're not going to be exactly doing the cha-cha when you're dead. <laughs> so, Yeah, I still feel like the best way to go would be before you die because then I don't know I mean maybe people just don't want to experience the consciousness of being frozen alive <laughs> yeah maybe they want to avoid that I don't know <laughs> but at the same time I, I would kind of want to see that I'm getting my money's worth rather than saying oh, okay mm. here's my life insurance policy Yeah, I'll just trust you guys to freeze me and screw <laughs> over my family and let you take my life insurance policy money. Like, that doesn't seem <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not a guarantee that you'll come, I don't know, that they'll be able to revive you whenever they... Because, like, when are they... I still... My s biggest question is still, when do they unfreeze you and... Well, I don't know that part, but they are taking pretty logical steps, I would say, to making this more foolproof. the One of the reasons why there was that big spike in membership, you remember, you remember I say back in the 80s they mm -hmm. only had three people, they cryogenically froze, right? Right. And that now there's 134. Mm -hmm. It's because there was an article published in 1986 about nanotechnology and how that would potentially be able to go through and repair any damage mm -hmm. caused by cryogenic freezing. That made everything really 
popular okay. with uh, cry the prospect of cryogenic freezing, at least relatively speaking. Hmm. Um, obviously, it's not something that anybody can afford, and it's not something that a lot of people who could afford it would actually do, because I think most people who have a lot of money are usually sane, <laughs> so <laughs> they don't want to do this. But um, that's one of the reasons why that grew. Now, once it grew, they had to. They initially had one of their bases in California, mm-hmm. and they were going to expand it there. But upon further analysis, they realized they shouldn't keep it in California due to earthquake risk. Since there was an earthquake <laughs> risk, they couldn't verify that the mm-hmm. facilities would remain intact the way they want them mm-hmm. to remain intact. So they moved it to Arizona, far away from the San Andreas Fault Line, where it's nice mm-hmm. and safe. Beyond that, well, now that they've been in Arizona for a while, all they need is a delivery of liquid nitrogen on a weekly basis, and it, they don't need any electricity to operate in their base. Oh. Basically, they can have the systems around the people they've preserved fail, and the people that were preserved are still going to be fine. They're going to be oh. imbued in liquid nitrogen, and they're going to stay frozen. Now, in my experience... Being subjected to a liquid nitrogen still kills you. <laughs> that's really cold. It causes cell death, and that's kind of what you need to be able to live is having cells that are not dead. So I think we've all seen the devastation in Terminator 2 of exactly. liquid nitrogen. Yeah. I mean, if that little, if that little like, molten reformulating Terminator dude can just kind of get back up from everything except for that <laughs> that's a little bit of a telltale sign for me yeah yeah i'll tell you after looking into cryogenics or cryonics or whatever you want to call it really makes me wish that michael Crichton was still alive to write a book on this topic oh uh, yeah that would have been great it's, it's it sounds very much like something that he would delve into at some point get brighter in here it's weird oh there's of course there are but i think it's notable that there are controversies about this like uh an entire section full of them <laughs> let's see uh first off under the controversies tab is dora kent who uh, moved to arizona from riverside california in 1994 uh, she became a center of controversy when a coroner ruled that Alcor client Dora Kent, who was Alcor board member Saul Kent's mother, was murdered with barbiturates before her head was removed for neuropreservation mm. by the company's staff. Alcor contended <laughs> that the drug was administered after her death and no charges were ever filed. Former Riverside County deputy coroner alan kunzman later claimed that this was due to mistakes and poor decision making by others in his office a judge ruled that kent was already deceased at the time of preservation and no foul play was involved alcor sued the county for false arrest and illegal seizure and won both so uh, that's a little startling that Mm. people are so desperate to prove this technology that they're willing to murder their own mothers with barbiturates. <laughs> that's not cool. Um, mm. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's what Futurama has been trying to tell us, Eric. Maybe mm. that's why we haven't seen people be unpreserved yet because they cut off the head. It's true. That could be the thing that does it. <laughs> <laughs> like, that might be the reason why. <laughs> Oop. In 2002, there's another controversy. Alcor drew considerable attention when baseball star Ted Williams was placed in cryonic suspension. Hmm. And although Alcor maintains privacy of its patients if they wish, and did not disclose that Williams was at the Scottsdale facility, the situation came to light in court documents that grew out of an extended family dispute over Williams' wishes in regard to his remains. While Williams' children, Claudia and John Henry, contended that Williams wished to be preserved at Alcor, their half-sister and oldest Williams' child, Bobby Joe Farrell, contested that her father wished to be cremated. Williams' attorney produced a note signed by Williams, 
John Henry, and Claudia saying, JHW, Claudia, and Dad all agree to be put into biostasis after we die. This is what we want to be able to be together in the future, even if it is only a chance. <laughs> John Henry later said, he was very into science and believed in new technology and human advancement and was a pioneer. Even though things seemed impossible at times, he always knew there was always a chance. So, how was that controversial? Is what I want to find mm, out. Yeah. Maybe it's controversial because people were like, oh, why do you want to be cryogenically frozen? Because he was like a famous person or something. I don't know. But the last one certainly is controversial, if true. In 1992... Oh, wait. This looks like this could be a continuation of... I don't know. It just says John Williams, I guess. Oh, no. It was... um, Okay. Continuing the Ted Williams thing really quick. In 2003... Sports Illustrated published allegations by former Alcor Chief Operations Officer Larry Johnson that the company had mishandled Williams' head by drilling holes <laughs> and accidentally cracking it. Well, there you go. Uh, so they were trying to sell some of uh, Ted Williams' DNA, <laughs> which was really bad of them. And for whatever reason, John Henry Williams, who was dying of leukemia... <laughs> came and defended his father once again and defended Alcor and it's that's kind of seedy if you ask me. So then we get down to the 1992 death. Well, first I want to note this sentence here that I love. It says, Johnson also claimed that some of Williams' DNA was missing. Which is funny to me because how do you know DNA is missing? Yeah, what? How do you? You're kind of. Aren't you all DNA? Aren't you made of DNA? Basically, you're saying that. Yeah, sure. We <laughs> did drill holes in his head because how else would you know DNA was missing? <laughs> if you took it out of him, then yes, yeah, it would be missing, wouldn't it? <laughs> so is the 1992 death part continued from that? Right. Because that's when that Johnson guy, Larry Johnson, a former uh, chief operations officer for Alcor, he still uh, is he's continues to make allegations beyond just that those of Ted mm. Williams in the 1992 okay. death. Okay, yeah, but yeah, basically he claims that an Alcor employee deliberately injected something into an AIDS patient to quicken their death so that they could. I guess get to the body quicker or something and then there's like contradictions between the nurse who pronounced the patient dead and you know their own reports on when they say the patient died um but yeah so if you know people are trying to hasten people's deaths that's not a good thing i mean this is even just starting to sound like a michael Crichton novel all sorts of yeah. business company intrigue and you know all sorts of conspiracy the weird thing to me about this is that the ceo of alcor is consistently doing things right like they are <laughs> If they, if any of these allegations come to light, they take the member that was responsible for any mm. of these actions, even potentially, and they banish them, they fire them, they isolate them, they get them out. <laughs> they don't let them stick around. In 2009, Carlos Moondragon, wait, what? Mondragon, still <laughs> pretty epic last name, um, basically said that he severed ties with the person who was responsible for uh, facilitating the AIDS patient's death. Mm. And to that end, it's interesting to me that this business is going so far out of its way (laughs) to maintain a legitimate face. (laughs) Meanwhile, half of its members are acting as though they're part of a cult. (laughs) And it's very strange to me because usually whenever there's a cult type of thing going on, the top of the 
food chain in that cult, the top of the pyramid, usually sort of reflects that in some mm. way, shape, or form. I mean, this technology is a little bit loopy and doesn't make sense. I admit that. <laughs> but at the same time, they don't do anything inherently wrong yeah. when it comes to what they're trying to accomplish. They are doing legitimate research. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if it's going to be any sort of productive end because they <laughs> kind of chop people's heads off and the people they chop the heads off of are already dead. Yeah. So between those two things, I think hmm. they're a little... Yeah, they're maybe they're maybe a little bit crazy, but I'm really on the fence. You know, I don't want to call them bad people because they don't seem to be the crazy ones here. The subordinates mm. seem to be the crazy ones. What a strange thing this is. I really can't even fully wrap my mind around it. This is just too good. Okay, on one hand, I'm happy this is happening. Because what if they do find something out? What if, mm. they, what if they're on to the Futurama thing? The heads in the jars and whatnot. <laughs> Why, though, would nobody else be looking into it if it had any legitimate yeah. sort of thing? Are they are they literally hoping that they're... Are they literally waiting for the head jar technology to come along? <laughs> Is that what they're doing? Because at this point, I think they've frozen enough people. Why, don't, why wouldn't they just work on that? <laughs> why wouldn't they work on developing the head jar? It seems like it'd be a good way to go. Yeah, I'm definitely interested on keeping tabs on this subject, you know, seeing where they, what happens with it. Also, in this article, they do picture one of the units that they use. (laughs) Uh, The Bigfoot Doer is a custom-designed vestibule that contains four whole-body patients and six neuropatients, i.e. six severed heads. (laughs) Immersed in liquid nitrogen at a constant temperature of negative 196 degrees Celsius. So cold that cell damage, I guess, no longer exists? (laughs) Maybe they figure, hey, let's just go really cold. Maybe so far to the point where cells are just like, "Eh, I don't know. (laughs) They stop moving. There's nothing left to damage because they just stop. They just stop. They just stop. (laughs) All of them stops. Um, in any case, this little thing here is interesting in that not only is it something that holds six severed heads at any given time, but it's also something that requires no electricity, and you can see in the picture, it's on wheels. (laughs) You could literally, if there were a ramp, or even just a level opening to a parking lot, just take this container and kind of push the six severed heads (laughs) along and sort of just take away whoever... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whoever's in there and take them with you and leave that's very interesting to me that they would uh, I mean <laughs> I understand that it doesn't require electricity and that it's self contained and that's pretty smart but it's also on wheels like people could just <laughs> take people away and you have some crazies working for you apparently so hmm. they should at least I feel as though they should at least put brakes on the wheels. <laughs> Something to prevent the process from being quick. Do we want to look at further into cryopreservation or cryonics, which both have their own link? And I don't know what the difference is. And Or we could go to liquid nitrogen or neuropatients. Neuropreservation. Delve into that. Severed heads. Aw, oh, man. While I was looking for a link just now, I... Stumbled across another little tidbit. As of November 15th, 2007, there were 33 pets in suspension. (laughs) They're going after the pets, folks. Hmm. It's not great. Well, I think we know a lot about cryopreservation now. Because we know that the people are stored separated from their bodies. That a formula that remains unnamed somehow prevents cellular damage in the brain. (laughs) The head is cut off of the body after legal death, and then the rest of the body is frozen at a temperature of negative 196 degrees Celsius, which is something along the lines of, I don't want to calculate that Fahrenheit. (laughs) Negative, I don't want to calculate that Fahrenheit. So, we we know about as much as there is to know, Mm -hmm. as far as laymen are concerned, about cryopreservation. So let's not do that. But maybe neuropatients? 
or if we could find a list of the 134 humans in preservation, hmm. that'd be interesting. Although that might, there might be like um, some kind of patient confidentiality kind of thing where they don't give out names and stuff. Yeah, it worked out really well for Ted Williams, didn't it? <laughs> well, neuropreservation is linked to at least twice or three times. So I'm kind of leaning towards that. Which one is that? Neuropatients? Yeah. Or we could just go to baseball. <laughs> okay. Oh, here's the thing about membership. Members suspended in in cryo whatever it is uh, include Dick Clare, an Emmy award-winning television sitcom writer and producer, uh, Ted Williams and John Henry Williams, as we mentioned earlier, and a futurist by the name of FM-2030, who has a link. Well, let's go to that one. <laughs> wow. That picture. That guy. <laughs> I have just conducted time travel. <laughs> I need somebody to go with me into the future. Safety is not guaranteed. <laughs> that is how he looks. FM-2030 oh <laughs> is a man who was born in 1930 and died in 2000. He was an author, teacher, transhumanist philosopher, futurist, and consultant. And believe it or not, his birth name was Persian, so I couldn't tell you what his name was before <laughs> it was FM-2030. Yeah, that's that's a name. It sure <laughs> is. It sure is. Apparently, he was a notable transhumanist, a term which I am unfamiliar with myself. <laughs> Me as well. He wrote the book... Are you a transhuman? I don't know. What's a transhuman guy? <laughs> it was published in 1989. So he was the son of an Iranian diplomat, traveled widely as a child, and he lived in 17 different countries by the age of 11. Yikes. Wow. He represented Iran as a basketball player in the 1948 Olympic Games. That's something. <laughs> and in the mid-1970s, he changed his name from Freddy uh, Stefanodri, whatever the first name was, to FM20304. Two main reasons. Firstly, to reflect the hope and belief that he would live to celebrate his 100th birthday. Eh, wrong. In 2030. <laughs> Secondly, and more importantly, to break free of the widespread practice of naming conventions that he saw as rooted in a collectivist mentality. Hmm and existing only as a relic of humankind's tribalistic past. So I guess, you know, try to make it sound noble. He did it because he thought that names were bullshit, but that's <laughs> more or less uh, it. Well, he sounds more like a radio station. He does. He sounds Maybe like that's what he was going for. He said he is a 21st century person who was accidentally launched in the 20th. He has a deep nostalgia for the future. However, he had pancreatic cancer and died in 2000 and was placed in chronic suspension where his body remains today. He worked as a corporate consultant for Lockheed and JCPenney. <laughs> Wait. Lockheed Martin, the jet people, and JCPenney, the people who said that they weren't going to do sales anymore and then made all the prices lower only to a year later revert to doing sales again <laughs> and making the prices high? Yeah, uh, it would seem so. Brilliant. That kind of explains <laughs> a lot about JCPenney. It also explains a lot about him, that he would work for JCPenney. What kind of a futurist works for JCPenney? I mean, come on. <laughs> Apparently hates naming conventions and all sorts of stuff and works for one of the most normal corporate entities out there. A normal corporate entity that is no less named for someone who was named by <laughs> the very tribalistic naming conventions he himself rebelled against. Hmm. So, uh, I don't know. 
he's a little a little riddled with with mystery this fm2030 guy so from here from here um where should we go hmm well we could figure out what the heck transhumanism is we could i think that would be a good thing to do let's really briefly end that figure out uh, maybe end on this one Mm -hmm. and the logo looks like hp but with a plus instead (laughs) of a p but it literally is ripped off of the hp logo like the p (laughs) would drop down right there yep it is an international cultural and intellectual movement of course with the eventual goal of basically transforming the human condition by making widely available technologies to greatly enhance human capacities. Okay. So in other words, it's the philosophy behind futurism. Mm-hmm. Essentially, maybe like the movie Limitless, where he takes a drug to unlock his whole brain. Right. Or the movie Lucy, mm. where she takes a drug to unlock her whole brain. <laughs> so that's... There you go. That's uh, transhumanism. <laughs> yep, that's it in the that's it in a nutshell. Being able to become the veritable Ubermensch. <laughs> Apparently, the FM two zero three zero guy was one of the first professors of futurology and taught some of the very first new concepts of the human <laughs> at the New School in the nineteen sixties. I feel like the nineteen sixties they very much focused on weird future stuff like that's where your both yeah where science fiction mm-hmm. movies you know they really started to get deep into science fiction but it makes sense because they were getting into the nuclear age and all sorts of exciting technologies started popping up with computers and all that kind of stuff exactly so i think it makes sense that it started to kind of come about then of course the way that it came about couldn't have exactly been anticipated as events unraveled later when nuclear power would suddenly become (laughs) frowned upon with events such as three mile island chernobyl Mm -hmm. and most recently the reactors in japan being Mm -hmm. destroyed by the tsunami uh, nuclear power sort of lost a lot of uh, <coughs> steam. <laughs> so the future was not quite as bright with a uranium-238 greenish glow as people once mm. thought. However, transhumanism is definitely catching on. The entire podcast, what we've been on? Computers. What if we had in our right hands? <laughs> Smartphones. Google Glass is coming down the pike. Mm. The government has not yet shut down the cryogenic freezing program on the pretense that it might have some legitimacy now. <laughs> I mean, transhumanism could never have anticipated the future, but it certainly had the idea that people were going to mm. adopt technology into their lives as fondly and as closely as we have down pat. Yeah, that's true. What I'm waiting for is the physical limitations thing, though. Oh, boy. <laughs> that's going to be a fun one. If we can get one of those Elysium exoskeleton things going on, that'd be pretty sweet. Transhumanism has been characterized by one critic as among the world's most dangerous ideas, (laughs) to which one philosopher has countered that it is rather the movement that epitomizes the most daring, courageous, imaginative, and idealistic aspirations of humanity. Hmm. So, of course, there are two polar opposites. (laughs) as far as opinions go on this issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a very controversial issue. And I can understand it, because it's going to become, basically, this is this is the X-Men mm. debate <laughs> coming to fruition right here. Yeah. You're going to look at people who are going to undergo various genetic mm-hmm. uh, enhancements, ultimately to achieve being able to be smarter, faster, better, and more terrifying i think that mark neely's character baby cakes put it best when he said better versions of human are scary um and that's exactly what's going to happen here anybody who is normal unaltered they're going Mm -hmm. to be 
short of knowing somebody who is an exceptionally powerful transhuman, they're not mm. going to be very welcoming of them. They're going to be intimidated yeah. by them. They're not going to understand them because they're going to soar above and beyond them. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, you have the people who think that, you know, we're humans. This is how we were born. This is, you know, we should just stick to what we have. Right, naturalists. And then other, you know, the other side is saying, no, why not? Why limit ourselves? Why not, you know, change us to be better than we would be otherwise? (laughs) There's this one paragraph under the heading aims where there are quite a few notes asking who (laughs) (laughs) questioning (laughs) who these people are that are saying these things (laughs) while many transhuman humanist theorists and advocates who many transhumanists who (laughs) transhumanist philosophers who are they (laughs) While many people, who? <laughs> I don't know, people, man. He's up. Where are you, you going to find sources on many people? You know? You're not. This is, I don't know. I feel like sometimes these Wikipedia editors can be a little critical. Like, I think that this article has plenty of citations already. We're only yeah. on, we're on paragraph what? I don't know. We're, already, we're on paragraph 12, and we're already at footnotes 61 and 62 in this paragraph where they're <laughs> dropping all these other little who's, who's, who's. They're just being cheeky at this <laughs> point. They're not being constructive. Yeah. It's really getting down to semantics, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there are 145 sources mentioned in this article. Well, I'm going to tell you what. This is a very fascinating article. It's a shame that we came across it so late in the podcast. (laughs) I'm going to have to bookmark this and uh, read a little bit more about it on my own, I think. Hmm. Especially because it links us to the thing, to a link called Memeplexes, (laughs) which is quite good. And also because it happens to mention the Amish. Does it? Yes. In the United States, it says, the Amish are a religious group probably most known for their avoidance of certain modern technologies, and transhumanists somehow draw a parallel by arguing that in the near future, there will probably be humanish people who choose to stay human by not adopting human enhancement technologies, and they believe their choice must be respected and protected. So it's refreshing to know that in a transhumanist society, the Amish shall remain <laughs> pure as inbred religious people can remain. <laughs> and yeah, and the Amish are lumped in with the people of Ming China and Takugawa, Japan. <laughs> wow. So there are other societies that transhumanists are totally accounting for in their philosophy. They're actually pretty aware and willing to allow for it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, that kind of comes off as though, yeah, we know that once we have our technology, we're going to be superior anyway. You can stay primitive. <laughs> That's fine. Why are we going to have to care? Like, yeah, okay, it seems high-minded and nice of you now, but what are you really <laughs> saying? Well, they're going to be the ones laughing when the people with all the special... Uh, what do they say? Human enhancement technologies mm. start failing and malfunctioning, <laughs> and then they're left with limbs that are dangling in the air and twitching and speaking monologues about <laughs> tears lost in the rain and so forth. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. <laughs> wow, this is quite a subject to end on. There is a plethora of stuff to read through here, but mm-hmm. like I said, I'm going to have to take it home with me. Yeah, I mean, we, we hit the bullet points and kind of gave, gave an idea of what it's what's going on with this subject, but there is a lot to dive into here. For sure. Yeah. So, well, th- there you have it from Richard G. Hubbler 
to transhumanism. Yeah, if you liked it, go ahead and visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast and like us and follow us. And then also please head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can always find new episodes on twc.erictoribio.com. And yeah, I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song. And I would like to thank the Bucktown Five for our outro song. And lastly, our totally true fact for this episode is... The transhumanist movement was originally founded by FM2030, the chief executive officer of Hewlett Packard, which is how they were able to create such a similar logo without incurring copyright infringement. There you go. All right, so (laughs) thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Kind of lame, but that really bugged me, that icon. It's just just HP. They just took the P out and put a plus sign there. And it's not even that much different. No. It's H+. Like, it's still... It's still HP. (laughs) If you put the first letter of plus there, it would still be HP. Like, yeah, they didn't put any thought into that at all. Like, honestly, you want to make H+, don't make it the circle. Just put the plus in the stem of the H. Just put it right there. Yeah, there's a lot more creative ways you can go about H+. If you want to have a thing about... Your philosophy is like you're integrating humans with stuff, right? Mm. So integrate your pluses with your H's. (laughs) Just stick it right on top of the H. Don't have it floating over there. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, they don't seem like too bright of a bunch anyway, so... They're not... I mean, I'm going to read through this and see if that... But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, I don't think it's wise. I don't think that they're stupid. I don't think that they're wise. That, yeah. Because, I mean, they started preaching the gospel of the future and how humans are going to international technologies years before they had any right to. Yeah, that's true. Even still, we have no idea what's actually going to take and what's not. We have a lot of things conceptually worked out. We have a lot of things that we're beta testing. We have a lot of things that Google is doing behind closed doors that would probably scare the living bejesus out of both of us. 